Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. All right, everyone, I am on the line with Mike Tung. Mike is the founder and CEO of DiffBot. Mike, welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. Thanks for having me, Sam. Yeah, I am uh, looking forward to this chat. We first talked about cover DiffBot in a newsletter uh, when you announced, I think it was the the company's Knowledge Graph project, and the, the headline of that newsletter was All the World's Knowledge on Tap. And so it's taken us a while, but we will finally dig into uh, what that was all about. But before we do, uh, let's explore your background a little bit. You were a patent lawyer at one point? <laughs> yes. Among, <laughs> uh, among many random jobs I've held. Quick background on me. I'm a, uh, I'm a machine learning researcher, right? So I studied uh, at uh, Berkeley Electrical Engineering. And then at Stanford, I started grad school uh, in, in AI. And um, I've worked as a software engineer before uh, at Microsoft, uh, at eBay, and, and at Yahoo. I was uh, the founder of a startup that was sold to Cisco called Click.TV. That was like a video search engine. And I was the founding engineer of a startup uh, called The Find that was a product search engine that was sold to Facebook. Um, and in between all that, while I was in grad school um, doing research in AI, I held a side job as a patent attorney. So as a patent prosecutor, helping people write patents. So I was the, uh, the patent uh, prosecutor for um, Panasonic out here in the Bay Area. And um, yeah, and that's, how, that's sort of how I bootstrapped a company and paid the bills at the very beginning. So I got really good at writing patents, um, could basically pull all-nighters and, and jam out a patent over the weekend and make like 20K so I'd, I'd have like uh, my my rent covered for a few months here in the that Bay Area. Awesome! That's awesome. So does that mean that before the engineering degrees, you had a law degree? No, I. Um, so the thing about patent law is, you know, first of all, it's federal, right? So it's Washington D.C. Um, so you don't have to have uh, a state bar, um, but you uh, you get the patent bar. So all I did was I I sat for the patent bar, took that exam, passed it, and uh, could represent clients and helping them get patents. That's awesome. I wonder if uh, we'll have any takers, uh, you know, listeners that try to uh, pick up this side hustle. Sounds like a nice one. <laughs> <laughs> well, it really dovetails with my interests, right? Because, uh, I mean, patents are kind of, um, especially the claims part of a patent is almost like a programming language in itself. It's a mm-hmm. legal programming language. And uh, to write the uh, description part of the patent, you have to be technical, right? So you have to be an engineer. And I was, had, since I had a CS and electrical engineering training, I was able to translate that into a patent language and then think of like alternative embodiments of the invention, right? That the the inventor came up with. Nice. Nice. Yeah. My sister, shout out to Lori, is a a patent, uh, an IP lawyer at at Intel. Um, And uh, we have really interesting conversations about the public aspects of, of what she does. It, it yeah. definitely sounds like interesting work. But, you know, on to machine learning, AI, and DiffBot. Tell us a little bit about the company. You know, as I mentioned, I was uh, at Stanford uh, in grad school. And, um, you know, I was, you know, kind of procrastinating from from writing my thesis, you know, and, and thinking of like what kind of area of AI research to, to specialize in. Um, but I, I realized that, um, you know, there's essentially three key drivers to improving AI, right? There's 
people that work on the hardware. There's people that work on improving the software and algorithms, and there's people that work on data, right? And there's large public companies that focus on essentially Moore's law, like making the hardware faster, like NVIDIA and, and you know, where your relative works at Intel, right? They're making the chips faster. Um, there's tons of people now uh, making the algorithms better, right? Including what I was supposed to be doing as a grad student, as well as, you know, for things like uh, TensorFlow and PyTorch, like these actual frameworks. Yeah, I was going to say, I'd argue that there's at least a fourth category of tools that support mm -hmm. oh, uh, yeah. the folks that are using the algorithms, but not to take away from your point, I get it. Totally, yeah, the tools, I mean, I would include that in software, right? It's the algorithms itself plus the software, but yeah, yeah you could separate it. that out. Um, but the third category, data, I feel like there isn't like sort of like a, an everything store of data, right? If you're building a, an AI application, uh, you generally uh, have the data as part of your current process, right? Or you start rolling up uh, your own sleeves and gathering information, right? So um, this became really clear, actually, at that time I was at Stanford, because that's around, uh, you know, just down the hall, uh, Fei-Fei Li um, was coming up with ImageNet, right, which is a very large set of uh, annotated images, right? Um, and, you know, I think it was like about a million images classified into about a, th a thousand synset categories of WordNet. Um, and that data set is really what kicked off the deep learning revolution, right? Um, just that uh, amount of labeled structured data. Um, and so, it, it, you know, a lot of neural networks were invented way before, right? Like in the, in the 70s and 80s, and we've, we've made some tweaks uh, to, to improve uh, how fast they train and our new architectures and so forth. But it was really that, that data set that made computer vision go from something that was basically a research grade, you know, task into something that's production grade, right? Something that's a little bit better than random to something that's uh, approaching human level of classification accuracy. Mm -hmm. um, so, I, so at that time I was thinking about, you know, how could you build like an image net for language or general concepts, right? And, um, the way that they built ImageNet, basically using Google Image Search and Amazon Mechanical Turk, um, it, it would require a calculated about 50 man years with a, a, a team of about 20 people to build a similar kind of data set for language because there's uh, language is way more complex than vision, right? Like human beings uh, alone have language and uh, like all animals have computer vision. Um, but then there's way more concepts, right? So if you think about number of concepts, even on Wikipedia, there's about a million or so, um, a quarter of magnitude pages on Wikipedia. And um, so just having about a thousand labeled examples of each of those concepts, you quickly uh, stack up like how much it would, it would take. Mm -hmm. um, so I started thinking about, well, where is all this knowledge? It's It, it exists on the public web. Uh, it's The web is the largest you know, resource of public knowledge we have as, as, a, as, a, as a species. Um, but the problem is the information is stored in all of these documents. So it's not structured data, right? It's not machine readable. And so if only we could create an algorithm that could actually read and understand all of those pages on the web and convert it into a coherent machine readable structure, then we would have um, solved solve this problem, essentially using AI. And so that's that got me to thinking about the idea behind DiffBot. So the mission of our company is to build the world's first complete map of human knowledge and make it machine readable so that other companies can build all kinds of smart experiences on top of it. And um, so we can have that future that we all want with intelligent agents all around us, right, that can benefit from structured information. So 
how to do that. It's a kind of a big, a big task. So, uh, and we don't have the resources, you know, bootstrapping to, to crawl the whole internet from day one. So and what in I, fact, <laughs> one of the first things that I, I thought as you kind of laid out that mission uh, is, you know, Google and, and Microsoft are, are both out there talking about their knowledge graphs and how they're kind of the very core of what they're able to do in, in many cases, machine learning and AI and beyond. Um, yeah. A lot of those come from, you know, their experiences building the, the Google and Bing search engines. Um, but, you know, massive, massive investments in pulling all that together. Um, sounds yeah. like. So how can we do it? Yeah, exactly. That's a lot of people ask us for sure. Um, so how Google really coined that word knowledge graph. So how they did it is basically, um, the history behind that, it, it, they they acquired a company called MetaWeb, right? That had a project called Freebase, mm. and uh, Freebase uh, was essentially that. But it's um, Freebase was basically imported all of the information from Wikipedia, those info boxes on Wikipedia, and then they had like a, a crowd editor that basically kind of allowed you to edit Freebase, like random people on the internet, right? So kind of crowdsourcing the problem. Mm-hmm. And then when it's- Google acquired. Well, yeah, sorry, go ahead. It's, just, it's interesting that uh, I think I envisioned something much more, I don't know if glamorous is the right word, but, you know, something more learned uh, than uh, something that started with Wikipedia. Like they kind of used the page rank graph and figured out what the concepts were and, you know, did something, I guess exotic is, is what I envisioned. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, people just, they have the assumption that, okay, they're Google, they have infinite resources, so uh, they everything is machine learning, right, that you see, <laughs> right, on the, all the knowledge panels and everything like that, right? Uh, but the reality is, when you're searching on Google, um, only things that generally have a Wikipedia page have a knowledge panel, uh, mm-hmm. at least that was originally when it launched, like, uh, you type in someone who's famous, and you'll get a knowledge panel, right? Mm-hmm. But if you type in like a regular Joe, right? Or you type in one of your relatives, your friends, your colleagues, they don't get a knowledge panel, right? Like, why is that? Because no one's added it. <laughs> you know, it's like, it hasn't been <laughs> free. Uh, even though right. you know, you could, there's pages about them for sure, right on the web. Um, and so um, what the at, at these large companies, many of which are our customers, actually, I can go more into that, you know, if, if we have time. But um, they basically start out with Wikipedia, um, and then allow there's ability to edit and curate it. And then this knowledge graph basically becomes like a, a file format within the company that many teams contribute to, actually, right? So a lot of these data sources, they're licensed from third parties, right? Like the sports scores and things like that, the weather feeds and stats, uh, other pieces of information that go into it um, are... Um, built by a specific department at the company. So there'll be like a recipes department that focuses on the recipe section of the knowledge graph. And they'll have an entire army of curators and stuff that just mm. focus on curating yeah, those particular sections. Okay. Um, but the, the different knowledge graph is the only one that is fully built by an autonomous system, right? We don't have the resources to hire thousands of, of curators and labelers for um, to curate all area, different aspects of knowledge. So the biggest differences between us is uh, a, uh, well, first of all, our knowledge graph is much larger, right? Because it's based on actually a different technique of crawling all the pages on the web and building it. Um, so it does have like the, those average Joe entities and startups and smaller companies in it. It has about 10 billion entities in the knowledge graph and about a trillion edges. Um, thirdly, it's, uh, secondly, sorry, it's, uh, you know, it's 
uh, available for use, right? Uh, so it's not just for uh, like consumer search where, you know, it's good for like the Kanye West or Taylor Swift query, right? But it's good for um, the kinds of entities that you would interact with in the business world, your suppliers, your vendors, right? Your customers, people you're trying to recruit, right? So I always like to say, you're not um, usually trying to recruit, you know, like Donald Trump or, or like hire Tiger, you know, sell something to Tiger Woods, these kind of entities that are in these consumer knowledge graphs, right? Um, but those those entities that you would deal with in the business world are actually in ours. So ours, I would argue, is much more useful to building real things. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then um, you can use it. So that's a very important point too. Like the Google Knowledge Graph, you can't actually pay like to access it, right? And that right. has to do with, uh, you know, for strategic and business reasons. They don't want people to just build a skin on top of Google and uh, and, and they just have like a, you know, a competitive product uh, offering. Um, so they haven't focused on um, that as their main revenue model. One of the use cases that I often hear Google and Microsoft talking about the contribution of their knowledge graphs is with virtual assistants. Do you find folks using DiffBot as a kind of foundational component for building that kind of virtual assistant bot experience? Yes, I can't share too many details, right, about the companies that use it in that way. Um, but they include big companies as well as startups. Um, the main problem that everyone's trying to solve in this category is basically um, a virtual assistant needs to have knowledge in order to be intelligent. Right. Mm-hmm. Most of the time you ask Alexa or Siri a question, you know, um, if it hasn't been something that's been pre-programmed in it, it's not going to be able to answer that. Right. So you have to almost talk like a robot to communicate with. Uh, these systems. Um, you have to talk in certain templates, right? Um, and if they could solve actually the problem of knowledge, then they'd be able to answer right almost any question that's that's askable. That's like a public fact. That is uh, definitely one of the applications that we see of the, of the knowledge graph. Uh, in general, though, um, we have you know over 400 companies that currently use Diffbot. Um, there's that's an example of a consumer application like an intelligent assistant. Uh, we have mo- a lot of the major search engines like DuckDuckGo, Yandex, Bing, uh, where uh, we're powering like their knowledge panels that you see. You know, so we're powering parts of their knowledge uh, experience. Uh, and then we have a lot of consumer apps like Instapaper, Snapchat. We power like the articles view in that. There's like a wedding planning app, Zola, where we help people build like a wedding registry. And then there's a whole bunch of business process applications. So you can use a knowledge graph to find sales leads. You can use it to find people to hire. You can use it to um, enrich your current CRM to better understand your customer insights, right? If you're a brand, you can use it to track like all the places online that are selling Nikes and monitor if anyone's selling fake Nikes or have counterfeit goods and things like that. So there's a whole bunch of um, BI uh, and market intelligence applications too that we're seeing now with this new product. Interesting. And so what's the typical user developer experience? So if you're a developer wanting to use DiffBot's products, there's basically three main ways you can use it. The first is our extraction APIs, right? So you can pass in an individual URL from the web to our endpoint, and then our machine learning will classify that URL and then extract it into an entity, right? So if you pass in like a product page, It'll say this is this is a product page. It's type product, and here's the price, and uh, here's the image, and name of the product, and description, and, and SKU, and weight, and all those product facts, right? Actually, let's just pause on that because 
you know, I've got a little bit of experience trying to extract data from pages. I'm sure a lot of people that are listening have tried to do this. And it is historically very, very hard. I mean, you have, you know, first of all, you know, trying to do if you're doing it based on regular expressions or XPath, like there's all different kinds of ways to do it. They're all super fragile. The sites change and they break all the time. They break all those rules. Yeah. Right. Um, So so what you're saying sounds like magic. (laughs) Like, you know, yeah. So we launched that on Hacker News, right? Which I don't know. I'm, I'm sure some of your listeners are familiar with that site. Mm-hmm. And you know, that's what a lot of developers say. This is ba- this is basically like magic. Uh, as an alternative, you'd have to use something like impart.io or Scrapey, right? And, and like you said, create mm-hmm. all these patterns and then maintain them. Um, that's, that's actually fine if you just want to get information from one site on a one-time job, right? Right. And maybe take a few minutes to configure that. But it's that's a problem when you want an ongoing process, right? And, and you want to get information at large scale, like from thousands of sites, right? Mm-hmm. It starts to become tractable to maintain that. Like 15% of your rules will break each week, right? Right. right. And so um, with the a machine learning-based approach, it's robust to any changes, like you said, in the design or the layout. And you don't have to create any rules. You just pass in the URL. And we don't have to create any rules because you can literally pass in a URL from anywhere. So it's like we can't, right? Um and then the other thing that's quite distinctive, too, is it works across any language on the web, too. So you can pass in a page uh, like a Japanese e-commerce page, which has totally different design conventions, right? Or mm-hmm. like a German article page, and it'll parse it perfectly as well. Um, so a lot of people use it because of that aspect. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was our first product, really popular as an alternative to writing you know, your own custom web scraper. Um, the second way developers can use it is called Crawlbot. So that's... Um, crawling an entire domain essentially right so it'll start from those seed urls and then it'll uh, that's how you can get essentially the entire database from a site right so you can say i want all of the products from target macy's j crew banner republic home depot and then you get the entire product catalog right of those sites uh, synchronized um, and then the third way is of course the knowledge graph and the way that you interface with that as a developer is um, with the diffbot query language which is basically kind of like a structured um semantic search so you can almost search the web as if it was like a huge you know uh structured semantic database um and we also have like a ui that allows you to helps you um, build those queries um sort of for the less technical users and then uh, for like business users um we integrate right the knowledge graph into the tools they already use right so you can export it as csv and so you can open it in excel or you um, we plan to build integrations directly into uh, things like Tableau, Salesforce, Excel, um, the actual tools that you might um, be your, you know, your actual daily driver, right? Where you're doing your data manipulation, um, being able to tap into the knowledge graph directly from those. And so when you're writing these queries, you're using machine learning in the back end to do the crawling and kind of understand the the pages and, and please elaborate on what specifically you're doing there. Um, but are you also uh, applying some kind of machine learning and interpreting the query itself. So, you know, if I put in a term, it's not just the the literal term, but maybe hitting some embedding or, you know, abstraction that's kind of trying to figure out what I'm looking for. Yeah. So there's, like I was saying earlier in this call, like our, our almost our entire company is one big machine learning problem. There's, a, there's about actually like a 50 or 60 separate machine learning problems that we study at Diffbot, right? So we're about a uh, now a 35 person company and like, mm-hmm. um, like 80% of our company is machine learning researchers. 
Um, so when we crawl the web, um, that's uh, largely um, where our VP of search is Matt Wells. He was the founder of a search engine called Gigablast, right? So that's how we're able to, um, as a small startup, um, uh, crawl the full web. Um, but what we what what differs is we render the whole web. So we're actually running the web inside real uh, rent, uh, real browsing engines. So and playing the web almost like a video game. Um, we serialize from every page essentially all the pixels on the page, the geometry of the page, all the visual styles and layout, and the internal state of the the virtual machine, the JavaScript and CSS layout engine. And those are essentially just like a long you know string of numbers. And that's where our algorithms use those numbers to classify the type of the page, right? So this page look like a article page. It has a very different look and layout from a uh, article page or a product page or like a person page. Mm -hmm. And then we use machine learning to extract the particular fields after we've classified it, right? So on a product page, um, look for the things that look like the price of the product. Look for the things that look like the image of the product, right? And then analyze the actual image to determine what's the color of the product, what material is it made from, right? Um, is it a, you know, red um, sports car inside it? Which model of, of car is it, right? If it, is it a, uh, a brown sweater, right? Like what kind of um, fabric and swatch pattern and such and so forth. And then we're analyzing the text of the, uh, of the page as well. So, you know, inside an organization's um, description, it might include like what is the... Um, uh, category of that organization when it was founded, where it's based, right? Who are the main officers of the company? So to do that, you need to do um, various kinds of natural language processing. Uh, so we have um, folks that uh, have developed the state of the art in entity linking, working at DiffBot to find the entities in the text. Uh, we do what's called a relation extraction to find the relations between those entities. And we also do machine translation, right? Because the text could be a non-English to start out with, like Arabic or Chinese, right? Um, and then once we've extracted these things, we um, then need to be able to link it across pages, right? So there could be um, one page about Sam Charrington and then another one on a different uh, page on the web, but we know they're the same real-world person, right? You don't have, want to have two entries in the knowledge graph for that, right? Mm -hmm. So we need to use machine learning to link together those extractions across multiple pages. And then we... Um, work on a problem called knowledge fusion, which is giving, given all that evidence, what is the probability of truth of each of those statements? And then we write the really highly confident facts like in, as triples into the knowledge graph. So that's kind of like end-to-end -end, kind of soup to nuts, how it goes from a page into an entity, right, in, inside this AI synthesized system. It, um, we build a new knowledge graph like around every four days. Um, and, and then on the query side, of course, um, we have structured querying, right, like such as the diffbot query language, there's, there can be ambiguity, right, uh, in, in parts of the syntax. Like if I, if I say I'm looking for uh, machine learning engineers that live in Mountain View, well, um, it needs to interpret whether that's Mountain View, California, or Mountain View, Arkansas, right? There's another city over there mm -hmm. that's called Mountain View. Um, there's also another Mountain View, you know, outside of the U.S. Um, but we all know which one, you know, we're likely referring to. So it needs to take in the, the stats, right, to interpret that mm -hmm. uh, statement. And then we're also doing at the research level, um, natural language question answering, right? which is more in line with the kind of your earlier question about assistance. Yeah. You know, what's fascinating about this is that the, you know, when you talk about the extraction problem and identifying the pictures and uh, identifying the, you know, what's probably the price, it, it, it sounds both super, you know, 
simple, really from the straightforward, uh, but also like terribly, terribly complex as scale? The trick is getting it to, it's easy to, to get 80% accuracy, but to get to the level of accuracy needed by commercial customers mm-hmm. and, and, at, and at scale across, you see a lot of weird stuff when you crawl the whole internet, right? There's all kinds of, uh, of wacky uh, stuff going on in the long tail of the web. But right. to get it to work perfectly there as well, right? That's where uh, it's really hard, and that you know, we will be working on this problem for many years. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, often when a company is tackling these kinds of problems, um, you know, whether it's information extraction or natural language processing, there's, you know, we're, we're using machine learning, but also. Uh, whether, you know, for exceptions or, you know, the, the kind of under the covers thing that's doing the heavy lifting is, you know, some old school, you know, regex or rule rules base or something like that. I can't imagine that, you know, again, scaling working in this context. Do you kind of totally eschew that, you know, those types of approaches or do you, do you do them and have you found a way to fuse them, uh, in a way that works? I mean, I guess, you know, we established that Google kind of does this. So, you know, it, it can be done at scale, but perhaps not with a team of 35. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So actually, um, if you are a user of Diffbot and you have access to the developer APIs, when you log into our developer dashboard, um, there is an ability to override uh, what's extracted by our AI. Um, so essentially, if, if for example, um, you know, uh, our, our extraction works pretty well. It has 90, over 95%, you know, like precision and recall. Um, but if it made a mistake for whatever reason, you can, you have the ability to actually say, Hey, no, this was the actual price of the product and mm. override that with a rule as a customer. And yes. so you kind of do, crowdsource the corrections. Yeah, exactly. That basically allows someone who's non-technical with like a visual interface, right. To kind of correct it, uh, that basically affect, you know, it, it works now for you. And and then what the other, second thing it does is basically it takes that rectangle right that they clicked on, and then it adds it to our training set right. So it improves the global model for everybody. So it doesn't create a rule that is, you know, an override for everyone, yeah. just no. for that user. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, but then it adds training data that is basically trained in the. It's kind of like uh, your spam, right? Like you might mark stuff as spam or not spam in your own inbox and it affects you, but then it also helps, you know, your email provider's global model. So I'm, I'm curious when you set out to start the company or, or, you know, thinking about the evolution of the company, is it like a machine learning research project organization that turned into a, a commercial entity or was it a commercial entity that you know eventually found in order to really do this you have to be a, a really heavy research organization well i mean the, the purpose was you know as i said before is to try to build the first complete map of human knowledge right mm-hmm. and uh, it just turns out that a corporate structure it, i found is the best way to organize labor right mm-hmm. um but um at the for the first couple of years, yes, it was just pretty much me sitting in a dark basement, like working on the math problems, right? Mm-hmm. Because I, re- I really wanted to make sure that the technology actually worked before uh, trying to do things like hire a bunch of people or scale it or, or raise money or things like that, right? Um, because uh, I think all too often um, with a lot of AI um, projects, like they might work well at a research or prototype phase, but then 
they're not at the level of quality that someone would actually pay to use it right in the, in the business world. Right. And then, so they, they'll, they'll have problems down the line trying to commercialize it. Right. So w- another unique aspect of our company, even though it is primarily an AI research company is that we're profitable. So a lot of other groups that do AI research are either subsidized by another part of the company, right? Like, like uh, most of the major tech companies, right. They aren't mm-hmm. themselves a, a profit center. Um, or they're funded by, you know, like a philanthropist, like um, um, like one of those nonprofit, you know, AI research companies. Mm. Um, Formerly nonprofit. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, open AI. Well, also the Allen Institute, I think, uh, yeah. is another example where it's funded by, you know, primarily Paul Allen. But uh, th- I think it's great, though, right, that that money is going into advancing the research that we definitely benefit right, from those mm-hmm. results. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so then over time, though, uh, as you know, this um, kind of web scraping machine learning AI became popular. Um, we needed to hire people to help keep the servers up um, and to um, grow the data center. We, we crawled the web out of two data centers here in the Bay Area. And so that's when I started um, kind of tapping into my Stanford network. Uh, eventually got connected with Andy Bechtelstein, who was the first investor in Google. So he um, led our um, angel round in DiffBot and he invested twice as much in our company. And then partnered with Sky Dayton, who is the founder of um, uh, both Earthlink as well as Cloud Kitchens. And then in the Series A, he partnered up with um, some of the folks behind Tesla and SpaceX uh, and and folks at Tencent. I mean, you mentioned that there's kind of 50 machine learning project problems or challenges as you kind of look across the things that you need to do to, to deliver this offering or, or solve this problem. Are your researchers also, um, do you publish, do you go to conferences like NeurIPS and kind of contribute to the community in that way? Yeah. So, um, basically the area of, of machine learning, machine learning is a big tent, right? But the area that we care about is information extraction, right? From Mm -hmm. unstructured information, whether it's text or images or document layout, Right. And also knowledge fusion. Um, so this particular corner of AI, um, the people that are working at DiffBot um, are in general way more qualified than me. So I'm probably the least qualified person in the company and that they've probably developed a state of the art system in that area. Right. So um, in uh, unstructured relation extraction, open relation extraction, um, the, the folks that developed that state of the art system, they're now uh in during their PhD work on that problem at DiffBot and have scaled it to the, the size of the DiffBot knowledge graph. One of the, um, the, C, the previous CTO of DBpedia, which is another well-known knowledge graph, joined DiffBot to focus on knowledge fusion. So we benefit from uh, these, these top researchers. And then another thing I should mention is we give free access to our knowledge graph to about a dozen or so different uh, academic AI research groups. Uh, and the thinking is that those... Um, professors and PhD students and grad students should be able to stay within academia and do fruitful research in this area of knowledge graph and large-scale information extraction without having to join a big company. Mm-hmm. So uh, we kind of see them and give them access to our knowledge graph. And they, they've used that to produce some interesting results. So we had uh, a collaboration like that that had a, a paper at, you know, NeurIPS. Um, and we've also done... Um, more active, more recently, uh, some of our own publishing. So at the, la- the last uh, EMNLP, uh, we released uh, a data set called KnowledgeNet that allows you to, in the research world, build your own end-to-end knowledge graph. Um, it's the largest um, 
knowledge graph construction data set um, that's been released so far. And it's very high quality compared to previous data sets. Um, and um, we also released like a, a baseline system um, in the open source that um, uh, is a reference system on that knowledge-based construction task. Um, and so that's also being used by a lot of other AI centers right now. So I think in the, in the earlier years, we were just pretty heads down on, on getting stuff to work. But now we are trying to have a more kind of a more of a capacity to publish and help uh, other research groups um, and kind of help with knowledge sharing uh, and help seed more research in this area. So one of the bottlenecks to productive research in this area is um, like if you're there hasn't been a lot of progress in knowledge fusion, for example, in academia, because you need access to a really large databases and knowledge graph to study that problem. Right. And so hopefully we're unblocking one of the bottlenecks to, to more research going on in the state of the art in academia. Can you talk about those couple of challenges that you mentioned? One, uh, knowledge fusion and uh, what's there. And you also mentioned uh, the knowledge-based construction task. Mm-hmm. How is that problem yeah. framed and what are mm-hmm. the, you know, the success metrics there? Totally. Yeah. So um, knowledge-based construction. So like a very classical academic um, um, shared task for that is run by uh, TAC uh, KBP. So that's like, I think, was originally organized by the National Institute of Standards. Um, but the input to that problem is basically text, right? So like newswire articles and things like that. And the output to that problem is um, is a knowledge graph. So it's like, what are the entities mentioned in all those documents? And what is the relationship between those entities, right? Um, like, is it company A acquired company B? Those would be two different entities mentioned. And then the relationship would be like acquisition, right? Or Person A is the founder of, of company B. Those are all examples of relations or triples. Mm-hmm. Um, so knowledge fusion is um, probably not a very, um, you know, probably it's, it's not very well publicized. Not a lot of people have heard about this research problem. But uh, what it is is basically um, how do you fuse multiple sources of data, right, into uh, a singular um, resource or database, right? So on the web, you can think about um, you know, there's many different kinds of, uh, of sites uh, and variety of different kinds of levels of quality of information on the web, right? And, you know, you might trust, for example, something you read on Wikipedia more so than on a blog that's hosted in Ukraine that just, you know, was created a month ago, right? Um, or something posted on social media, for example, right? Um, and also, there's the time aspect, right? So um, what was true at one point in time may not be true at another point in time. Like people change jobs, people switch roles, um, relationships change, right? Um, Products change, there's new stuff coming out all the time. And the recency of the information is critical, right? To any kind of business application, right? So what Knowledge Fusion does, uh, we've created um, essentially algorithms um, at DiffBot, uh, kind of equivalent to uh, what we call knowledge-based trust. So think about PageRank, but not for site authority, but for, uh, trustworthiness of the facts, like from that origin, right? Okay. So we almost have an algorithm that propagates truth, right, through uh, this graph that um, learns on its own to to know that Wikipedia, if something is published there, is more trustworthy, right, than a random social media post, right? Because it because why is because Wikipedia has um, a higher track record in previous iterations of knowledge um, based trust 
of producing facts that agree with other sources, right? So there's kind of like a, a consensus algorithm going on and, and cross-checking going on. Mm-hmm. Um, within Knowledge Fusion, um, there's whole kinds of different ways of approaching the problem. There's um, ontological inference. So, for example, if you see on a page, Mike Tung, you know, who's, who's me, uh, lives on the planet Venus, right? Um, our algorithms would ideally say that that's not very likely to be a true fact. Why? Because other pages say Mike Tung works at DiffBot. DiffBot is based in Menlo Park. Menlo Park is in California on the planet Earth, right? Which is millions of miles away from Venus, right? Um, those are all entities in our knowledge graph, right? So that logical chain of uh, reasoning would assign very low weight to that fact being true, right? And also the fact that it's not uh, being corroborated by other trustworthy sources, right? So this kind of mechanical calculation of how likely something is to be true uh, is part of knowledge fusion, which fuses it together to, to estimate a probability of truth. One question that I've got, you know, as you describe this knowledge base construction task and the example that you gave of uh, the kind of uh, knowledge base that one might want to extract from uh, newswire articles, etc. I guess I'm, I'm trying to work through the relationship between a knowledge base that you've got, you know, that's kind of a global knowledge base and a knowledge base that, you know, I want to create uh, around my documents? Should I be trying to, you know, if I've got a problem and I want to, you know, say, you know, I'm at a large enterprise and I've got kind of stores of internal knowledge and I want to, you know, create some kind of knowledge graph based on that. Should I be building a knowledge graph from scratch that is, uh, not aware of kind of the broader global knowledge graph or knowledge base, or should I somehow be, you know, not to overload the word fuse, fusion, but, you know, trying <laughs> to fuse the, the knowledge that, you know, a service like yours might make available to me about the broader world, you know, maybe treat that as some kind of framework or ontology or something to get me started. How do you see folks kind of dealing with those questions? Yeah, so um, that's that's a really good question. So, I mean, there's all kinds of vendors in this burgeoning space, right, of knowledge graph. Uh, I think it's recently um, been added as one of kind of like the um, the uh, things that uh, attract in like the, the hype cycle, uh, Gardner's hype cycle. Um, there's people that provide actually knowledge graph databases, right, like uh, graph databases. There's people that are kind of provide consulting services to help your organization build their own knowledge graph. Um, our focus is on just structuring the public knowledge, right, of the public entities, and that's a big enough space for us. But what um, we find, though, is that a lot of the entities that companies care about are, are public knowledge. They are public entities, right? Like all of the accounts inside uh, your CRM, like an, inside your customer database, those aren't um, specific to you. They're, 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 um, they're, they're companies that exist out there in the real world, right? So are the people. Like we have a vast majority of this, the people on Earth uh, inside our knowledge graph. Um, so, um, however, um, the key thing is being able to connect the internal knowledge graph to the external one and benefit from it, right? So, uh, be able to import the facts that we know in in the DiffBot global knowledge graph into your uh, internal stores, right? So that's where the integrations are key, right? So there's um, an API that we have called uh, Enhance that actually allows you to, um, let's say, imagine, for example, you're a small business. Um, you have um, some leads inside a database that 
um, you collect from your website, you might know, okay, the first name and the email address and a uh, company that, that one of your customers works for. You can essentially look that up in our knowledge graph, just only using those three uh, facts, what we call like a partial entity and match uh, our entity in our knowledge graph. And then you'll gain basically like 200 or 300 additional facts like about that entity. So uh, DiffBot can be used as a tool to both uh, correct your internal data and to keep it up to date um, with new information. So if you think about enterprise knowledge, uh, a lot of people's effort is spent just keeping the database up to date, right? Um, you have like a big vendor database and how many of these vendors are still in business or is this the current mailing address of this company anymore, right? It's a huge headache, right? And a lot of effort is spent uh, in many functions across the whole enterprise just maintaining uh, the currency and accuracy of all this information. And that's the kind of work that we hope to alleviate human beings from having to do in the future by basically tapping into this global knowledge base. Awesome. Lots of lots of good stuff in this conversation. You know, I guess one quick question I have just pulling up the, the DiffBot page and looking at or the DiffBot site and looking at pricing, uh, it doesn't look like there's a kind of developer, you know, free tier, that kind of thing. So, you know, maybe folks listening to this shouldn't get excited and say, oh, I'm going to go try this out. Like you've got a, a free trial, but you're not necessarily yeah. uh, taking that kind of freemium type of a model. Is that correct? Or is there something available for folks that want to, um, you know, kind of play around, you know, yeah. hobby projects, that kind of thing? So, I mean, we call our business model knowledge as a service, right? So it's, it's a subscription to access information called the knowledge graph. Um, yeah, like you said, we do have like a, a two week free trial for trial access. Um, if you need to use it, you know, longer than that for certain projects, like I mentioned, we do provide free access to certain kinds of groups. Like, you know, if it's a student project or if it's like a academic research, right. Mm -hmm. Um, or things like that. Um, I think we have pretty, pretty, uh, friendly pricing for, for startups, right. Like starting at, at two ninety nine. Um, it's, it'll basically be the same cost as your EC2 server probably that you host your application on or, or less if you're like a startup um, for the larger companies, large enterprise. Um, usually those kind of companies like to pay annually with annual contracts. So those are um, basically done through sales rather than, mm -hmm. than the website. Cool. Well, Mike, uh, thanks so much for taking the time to chat with me, share a bit about what you're up to. I uh, definitely enjoyed it. Yeah, likewise. It's been a pl pleasure talking to you, Sam. Thanks for having me on. Thank you. All right, everyone, that's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit twimmelai.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.